You're listening to Gist FM, where a young entrepreneur, affectionately known in some circles as Ellie Cheesecakes, peeks into the bookshelves of successful entrepreneurs and remarkable thinkers, picks out thought-provoking non-fiction, and boils it down into 20-minute podcasts, with the help of authors and voice actors. Rather than the end of books, this is meant to be a glimpse into great minds that will hopefully inspire you to read more, or, let's be humble here, make your commute a little less boring. There are no ads, and all show notes with quotes and links from every episode are on gist.fm. Ten Thousand Hours with Reed Hoffman What I Learned by Ben Kesnacha. Part 1. We touched down in Las Vegas only three hours before, but we were already back in the plane and flying home to San Jose on a brisk winter day in December 2012. Not having to deal with airport security saves a lot of time. Other than the two pilots in the front, Reed and I were alone, debriefing what worked and what didn't at each tech event we had just spoken at. I gave some quick feedback on the answer he offered to a question about LinkedIn's vision. He replayed his answer on how Greylock differed from other venture capital firms. I took notes. The conversation then shifted, as it increasingly did these days, to a different line of inquiry. Did this trip to Vegas advance an important professional project? Did he have fun? Or both? Every decision has trade-offs. When you choose to do one thing, it means you choose not to do some other thing. When you choose to optimize a choice on one factor, it means necessarily sub-optimizing on other factors. Reed faced trade-offs in his life that were heavier than the ones you or I face. Imagine you can meet anyone, from the President of the United States on down. Do almost anything you can think of, from saving the local opera company from bankruptcy to traveling to the farthest outpost on Earth in total luxury. A small number of humans have virtually no constraints on their decision-making, and Reed is one of them. When Reed chose to fly to Las Vegas and speak at this event, the list of things he chose not to do at the time was very, very long. Often, Reed wrestled with those trade-offs. Author E.B. White once captured the essence of why. I wake up in the morning unsure of whether I want to savor the world or save the world, White said. This makes it hard to plan the day. For some, savor is the easy answer to the task of planning a life. For those with no constraints, the plan is often straightforward. They put their name on a few buildings of their alma mater, buy a pro sports franchise and call it a day. For the 99% of people with resource constraints, they might bang a 9-to-5 job, accumulate vacation days as diligently as possible, retire early, and maybe donate to their friend's walk against cancer. Reed likes to savor, albeit not hedonistically. Savor for him means arriving at an intellectual epiphanies. It means spending time with friends. But what he really wants to do is save. He wants to use his talent and network and money to change the world for the better and solve some of humanity's biggest problems. He is among the most selfless and externally generous people I've met in my life. Decision-making becomes hard when you want to do both. Which is it today, saving or savoring? Usually you have to choose. It's the very rare project that involves close friends and ongoing intellectual stimulation and change the world impact. That evening, I sat across from him on the plane. He looked exhausted. The speaking event he had just done was in the save or change the world category. It would hopefully inspire other entrepreneurs and extend the Greylock band and help build a couple relationship with folks in the industry. 
It wasn't especially fun or stimulating and didn't involve close friends. At that moment, I felt like he should be doing more stuff just for him. He worked so hard to achieve his success. Why not kick back a little and play Settlers of Catan while drinking fine whiskey in the south of France? Yet at other moments, after he meets with a dynamite non-profit that's saving the lives of millions, I understand why he commits to helping, even if it leaves him drained by the end of the weekend's marathon meetings. The save-saver dilemma is one he's still figuring out and probably always will be. He's not alone, of course. All of us who enjoy privilege in the world struggle with the dilemma on different scales. Myself, I wonder about how much energy I should expend on the billion people in the world who live on a dollar a day or less versus tending and enjoying my own little inconsequential life. How much should I volunteer and donate to charity? What does it mean to lead a life of purpose larger than self? And is that something I even need to concern myself with? Should I feel guilty if I blow money at a resort in Thailand when people just hours away are starving? Reed likes to point out false choices. For example, some ask if entrepreneurs should set out plans or just be ready to adapt. False choice, Reed says. They need to do both. Should you have a small number of intimate friends or a large number of looser ties? Both. Indeed, one of Reed's favorite quotes is from the great Jewish sage Hillel. If I am not for myself, who is? When I am for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? One interpretation of the quote is that you must love yourself, and yet you ought to not just to live for your own benefit. You should help others too. Reject choosing between self-love and love of others. Do both. So I'd agree that the macro-correct answer to the save-saver dilemma is both. But in practice, at the micro-level of an individual decision, we tend to just pick one or the other. I believe trade-offs loom larger than false choices. This is one theme I thought about a lot while working with Reed over the past four years. I will shortly elaborate on many other lessons I learned from him, but I suppose I should explain first. Why the heck was I on that plane back from Las Vegas in the first place? In her 2011 profile of Reed Hoffman, Evelyn Rusley of the New York Times ended with a direct quote from Reed. I'm functioning at a 60% effectiveness, he said. It was a startling final acknowledgement because the article chronicled the lengthy list of activities and accomplishments that made Reed the king of tech. Given how successful he'd been over the past decade, you'd think he was operating at 150% effectiveness. But I knew Reed wasn't being facetious. I had just spent two years full-time partnering with him on our first book, The Startup of You, which gave me a view into his life. In addition to his duties as LinkedIn's executive chairman, Reed worked as a venture capitalist at Greylock, served on several private and public company boards, supported a range of philanthropic initiatives, and produced various intellectual artifacts such as our book. And let's just say that his flow of ambition and ideas was not exactly slowing down. It's a lot for anyone to keep track of. On top of all that, thanks to LinkedIn's IPO, he was now a fixture on the Forbes Rich List. Billionaire status introduced all sorts of social complications in your life, especially for a guy who wasn't expecting it. Reed played Dungeons and Dragons as a kid, drove oxen in high school, and came out of college with the intent of studying philosophy as a professional academic. It would be strange if there were not some scaling issues on the way to moguldom. The 40% question. That's what I titled a presentation I delivered at Reed's house in July 2012. The thought experiment was simple. What would it take to bridge the final self-identified 40% of his capacity so that 100% of his cylinders were firing? 
How would the world be different and how would his life be different as a result? With the startup of you done and published, I had some free time, so we conceived a tour of duty to help me wrestle with this question full time. It was initially set as an interim six-month gig, since neither of us knew exactly what we were doing. It turned out to be two years. We picked chief of staff as the job title, even though there was no staff to be chief of yet, and even though it's a title that means different things in different contexts. Here's how I now list the position on my LinkedIn profile. I helped conceive, build up, and then run a new organization to amplify and extend Reed Hoffman's strategic priorities. Working out of LinkedIn and Greylock offices for almost two years as chief of staff, I was involved in many of the decisions Reed made across different areas of his work. LinkedIn, where he's the co-founder, executive chairman. Greylock, the venture capital firm where he's a partner. His philanthropic work, assorted public intellectual projects, and political civil initiatives. I also strategized and executed new proactive initiatives to increase REIT impact in Silicon Valley, Washington, D.C., and beyond. I hired and managed a team of employees who staffed all of the above efforts. I loved working with colleagues at LinkedIn and Greylock with REIT's broad network of portfolio companies and organizations for profit, nonprofit, and political. But my favorite part of the job was the late-night one-on-one conversations with Reed like the one on the plane from Vegas, where I offered my best candid advice on whatever was on his mind, and where I did my best impression of a concierge come interlocutor as he rummaged on the small and big questions animating his life. A handful of months have passed since transitioning out of the chief of staff gig along with the publication of our second book together, The Alliance. So it seemed an apt time to summarize several important lessons I learned about life and business from Reed over three tours of duty, co-authoring The Startup of You, doing the Chief of Staff gig, and co-authoring The Alliance. I'm not going to get into the details of the work with Reed at LinkedIn and Greylock and his philanthropy and so on, in part due to privacy and confidentiality considerations. Instead, I'm going to focus more on the generalizable takeaways. I picked 16, but there are dozens more, of course. Lesson number one. People are complicated and flawed. Root for their better angels. Too often, people classify someone's competence or character in black and white terms. He's brilliant or he's an idiot. She's got a heart of gold or she's an asshole. He's an ethical prince or a convening win-it-all hustler. It's an unfortunate tendency. Expertise is always relative. Every saint has a past and every sinner has a future, as Oscar Wilde said. People are complicated. Reed is widely known as the ultimate connector. One of Reed's underrated gifts in this regard is that he maintains a very complicated portrait of the people he knows. He appreciates the full spectrum of strengths and weaknesses of a particular person. He'll comment on a friend's character flaw, say self-centeredness, but in the next breath note one of their unique strengths. Flaws that cause others to completely disengage are, for Reed, navigable, to use Reedism, en route to their better side. Along these lines, Reed forgives mistakes in his friends. If you make a mistake, or three, or if a weakness of yours gets exposed, you're not dead to him. It's just another data point in a rich tapestry in a long-term relationship. A good friend of his once convinced him to make a special trip to New York to participate in an event. 
Later, I asked him how it went. It was a foolish waste of time, he replied. And yet, the very next week, he was on the phone with the friend and plotting future moves. He'll rarely let a single failure or shortcoming overshadow your successes or noble aspirations. And he'll always root for your better angels to prevail. It's no wonder his friends are so loyal to him. It's a philosophy that reminds me of my late friend Seth Roberts, who promoted an appreciative approach to life. When evaluating someone, instead of starting with their weaknesses, first ask what's uniquely excellent about them. When evaluating a study, first ask what we can learn from it instead of jumping to a critique of the study's flaws. Let an appreciative point of view imbue everything you do. Lesson number two. The best way to get a powerful person's attention? Offer them help. As chief of staff, I've reviewed thousands of requests for Reed's time, attention, and money. It was stunning how few requesters actually offered to help him on something. Amusingly, many requests were framed as if the asking party were doing Reed a favor by giving him the opportunity to help them. Like, it'd be fun to get your feedback on something I'm working on. Reed is so generous and so curious that sometimes it is fun for him to simply help you. But why not figure out why he's working on something and send an article of relevance? Or offer to share a perspective that could be useful? Most people think there's no way to help someone as famous and wealthy as Reed or Bill Gates. Let's run the thought experiment. How could you help Bill Gates? Donating to his favorite charity won't help. There's no one you could introduce to him who he can't already meet. Buying a Microsoft product won't make a difference in the grand scheme. But the truth is, what Gates crave and what you might have is information, a unique perspective, an insight on something that's happening in your corner of the universe. He can't buy that off a shelf. If you can connect information you know to something Gates needs, suppose your 10-year-old cousin is obsessed with a new app that may reveal a new trend in computing, he'll find it valuable, and you're more likely to help build a relationship with him. At the least, it's a powerful first gesture that's the opposite of a gimme. Help first, help first, help first. It's key to building relationships, even with the ultra-successful. Lesson number three, keep it simple and move fast when conceiving strategies and making decisions. Reed is a strategist, but he's not someone who can recite Clay Christensen or Michael Porter verbatim. In fact, Reed has never formally studied strategy and he rarely references the famous gurus. Instead, his views on strategy are hard won through experience and specific to entrepreneurial contexts. Situations where the overall battlefield is foggy, the ground underneath you is shifting, and death is assured if your next step is not the right one. Of course, in The Age of the Unthinkable, the title of one of his favorite books, this increasingly describes the battlefield all organizations are fighting in, not just startups. His first principle is speed. His most tweeted quote ever is, If you aren't embarrassed by the first version of your product, you shipped it too late. His second most quoted tweet ever, in founding a startup, you throw yourself off a cliff and build an airplane on the way down. Practically, he employs several decision-making hacks to prioritize speed as a factor for which option is best, and to speed up the process of making the decision itself. 
When faced with a set of options, he'll frequently make a provisional decision instinctively based on the current information. Then he will note what additional information he would need to disprove his provisional decision and go get that. What many do instead, at their own peril, is encounter a situation in which they have limited information, punt on the decision until they gather more information, and endure an information-gathering process that takes longer than expected. Meanwhile, the world changes. If you move quickly, there will be mistakes born of haste. If you're a manager and care seriously about speed, you will need to tell your people you're willing to accept the trade-offs. Reed did this with me. We agreed I was going to make judgment calls on a range of issues on his behalf without checking with him. He told me, In order to move fast, I expect you'll make some footfalls. I'm okay with an error rate of 10-20% to 20%, times when I would have made a different decision in a given situation if it means you can move fast. I felt empowered to make decisions with this ratio in mind, and it was incredibly liberating. Speed certainly matters to an extreme degree in a startup context. Big companies are different. Reed once reflected to me that the key for big companies like LinkedIn is not to pursue strategies where being fastest is critical. Big companies that adopt strategies that depend on pure speed battles will always lose. Instead, they need to devise strategies where their slowness can become a strength. His second principle is simplicity. Simplicity enables speed. In situations where there are many paths, he frequently groups the possible options into light, medium, and heavy, or easy, medium, hard. For example, we were debating different ways to publish and promote the LinkedIn Series B pitch deck we created. We could simply click publish, share it on LinkedIn and Twitter, and see how it spreads. We could reach out to journalists in advance and give someone an exclusive early look. We could write a series of supplementary essays that appear simultaneously with the deck. We could audio record his oral commentary on each side. Reed bucketed the options into three categories, basic, intermediate, and advanced. How intensively do we want to go after this? We decided on a level of intensity and executed on a relevant set of actions. When there's a complex list of pros and cons driving a potentially expensive action, Reed seeks a single decisive reason to go for it, not a blended reason. For example, we were once discussing whether it makes sense for him to travel to China. There was the LinkedIn expansion activity in China, some fun intellectual events happening, the launch of the startup of you in Chinese. A variety of possible good reasons to go, but none justified a trip in itself. He said, There needs to be one decisive reason, and then the worthiness of the trip needs to be measured against that one reason. If I go, then we can backfill into the schedule all other secondary activities. But if I go for a blended reason, I'll most surely come back feeling like it was a waste of time. He did not go to the trip. If you come up with a list of many reasons to do something, Nassim Taleb once wrote, You are trying to convince yourself. If there isn't one clear reason, don't do it. An analogous belief Reed has about consumer intent business models. There is generally one main business model. Listing a blend of possible revenue streams make investors nervous. LinkedIn is the exception that proves this rule. Making the complex simple does not mean ignoring the complexity. Reed is a nuisance thinker who does not shy away from detail, second-order effects, exception cases, and so on. But especially in a group decision-making process where there are various points of views, it's important for the leader to distill and frame the options set with simplicity. Wrestle with complexity, yes, but frame and commit to a decision that's simple enough for everyone to understand and act on. 
simplicity can also translate into focus. He once told me about a frustrating conversation he had with someone at a startup who mapped a multi-phase vision for a project that stretched out a couple of years. He didn't get it, Reed told me. If you don't get phase one right, you're dead. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. He should be completely focused on nailing phase one. There are going to be fires all over the place. Keep it simple. Just focus on the one most important fire. Reed's third principle is empowerment, to have those close to the ground modify the strategy. A lot of strategists and CEOs think that their job is to conceive a strategy and then hand it off to the underlings to execute. They might concede that delegation matters, but usually as a matter of execution more than strategy. Reed disagrees. He once told me, whoever is actually immersed in the actual execution of a strategy should always think of ways to tweak the strategy for the better. It's a litmus test for talent. How do you know you have A-plus players on your project team? You know it if they don't just accept the strategy you hand them. They should suggest modifications to the plan based on their closeness to the details. And as they execute, they should continue to tweak the strategy. And you, the owner, should not feel the need to micromanage or second-guess. If you do, you've got the wrong person. Lesson number four. Every weakness has a corresponding strength. I sat down with Reed one day and shared a self-evaluation of my work, my goals, and my strengths and weaknesses. When I discussed how to compensate for certain weaknesses, he told me, Most strengths have corresponding weaknesses. If you try to manage or mitigate a given weakness, you might also eliminate the corresponding strength. He shared a personal example about himself. He's not particularly well organized. But perhaps his day-to-day chaos partially enables his creativity. Creativity involves connecting disparate ideas. The man is a non-stop generator of ideas. Perhaps the unstructured tempo of his life is a positive enabling force. How intensely organized you are and how creative you are might be two opposite sides of the same coin. Another example. His loyalty and generosity with friends is a strength. Friends are so important to him and he to his friends. And the stellar results of his collaborations with friends are for all to see. But sometimes, he gives too much and sometimes his friend take too much. And it pulls him away from taking care of himself. This two-sided coin idea informs one of Reed's classic strategy jujitsu moves. Turn your weaknesses into a strength. For example, if you're a startup and worry your lack of a track record is a liability, instead of wishing it away, figure out how to turn your newness into a strength when marketing to customers. On an individual level, not a good writer? Be great on camera and with video. Aren't a fast thinker? Be known as deliberate, careful, and detail-oriented, and so on. Lesson number five. The values that actually shape a culture have both upside and downsides. A lot of companies maintain a list of values that are all sweetness and light. Integrity, excellence, hard work, and so on. Those are fine values to put on posters and hang in corporate cafeteria, but they aren't what really defines a culture, says Reed. The values that matter offer clear pros and cons, clear upsides and downsides. Just as there's no great opportunity without risk, there's no decisive culture-shaping value that also doesn't have drawbacks. In the early days of LinkedIn, for example, there was no Kool-Aid drinking. The internal narrative was not rah, 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 we're destined for greatness. 
When things weren't going well, Reed and the execs and the employees talked about it. The upside to this honesty-first approach was that it led to useful introspection. The entire company could collectively problem-solve around key challenges. The downside to this approach had to do with morale. Indeed, some very talented people sold their stock early and left the company because they didn't think the business had a future. A decisive cultural trait. Full transparency with the entire company about both the good and bad. At PayPal, one cultural trait was let the best idea win. No idea or answer at PayPal could be taken at face value. Instead, the idea's proprietor had to argue vigorously and withstand critiques from colleagues. The upside? Analytical rigor tends to produce better ideas than this is the way it's always been done or the CEO said so. The downside? A confrontational interpersonal culture can stress relationships at work and undermine possible collaboration. Moreover, this cultural undercurrent was effectively anti-experience. It was a harder place for experienced people to operate because they had to reprove themselves. A more general case of the PayPal example is the extent to which a company is autocratic versus democratic in its decision-making. This tends to be a defining cultural trait even though you've never seen it noted on a company's About Us webpage. I don't believe there are good corporate values or bad corporate values beyond what is obvious. Many different types of cultures have produced successful companies. What's important is to understand the values at work that actually shape your company's behavior and to understand the trade-offs involved. And if you're applying for a job at someone else's company, be sure you understand the true culture that you'd be working in. If you liked what you heard, jot us a few words in the reviews section of iTunes. We're a new kid on the wire, and a little bit of love makes a really big difference. If you'd like to get the show notes, or to sign up for previews of episodes and full transcripts, go to gist.fm. It's all there. Thanks for listening.